You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Nicole Porter, who is the lead researcher on a report released in August that's called Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. Anytime a prison closes and no longer warehouses and disappears people to it, it's a step in the right direction and it's helping to reverse the nation's mass incarceration footprint. What I hope happens going forward is that decarceration advocates and abolition coalitions work to not just demand for prisons closures and repurposing them, but also moves away from monetizing and capitalizing off of mass incarceration. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host today, Jesse Strauss. From the 70s or 80s into the early 2000s, we saw the numbers of people locked up in prisons and jails increase around the country. But since the first decade of the 2000s, the numbers of people being locked up have actually decreased nationally and also locally. One of the results is that prisons themselves have started to close nationwide as they have more and more empty beds, empty cells. So on today's show, we take a look at what it means for imprisonment facilities to close, the impact on social systems, the impact on local economies, and especially what happens to the actual buildings that once held people in cages. Our guest today is Nicole Porter, the Senior Director of Advocacy for the Sentencing Project, who is the lead researcher on a report released in August that's called Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I know I have more questions than we have time for, probably. Our listeners know that this show is abolitionist, and when we talk about abolition, when push comes to shove, there's always questions about what to do right now. We have all this infrastructure built around the prison industrial complex. How do we make that transition? So I'm excited to learn more about how to repurpose former imprisonment facilities in this conversation. That said, let's frame the issue You've been researching and publishing about prison expansion and prison population growth since the early 2000s. One paper you wrote in 2007 with the Texas ACLU is about the growth of Texas prison population from the 1980s until the early 2000s. Prison populations boomed until sometime in the mid-2000s, but sometime around then, incarcerated populations started to shrink. Since you've been doing this work, What have you seen in terms of growth or shrinkage of prisons in that time? And how do prison population numbers relate to prison spending or prison construction itself? Sure. Well, thank you for the question. And thank you for featuring this on your on your program. So uh, prison population, the national prison population did peak in 2009 and in some states started to decline. Um, and several states like New York, California, New Jersey have had significant declines in their prison population, and yet the number of people incarcerated there are still too high, uh, much higher than they were when mass incarceration started in the early 70s. So there's a lot more work that could be done to decarcerate, to move people out of prison, and um, let, let folks go home. There's a mix of reasons why, just as the just um, as there are a mix of reasons why mass incarceration started in the first place, from a mix of punitive sentencing policies like the three strikes 
law in California passed by ballot measure, two truth and sentencing laws passed at the federal level and in a number of states, two mandatory minimum sentences. And decarceration happened in many states um, starting in the late 2000s because of a change in sentencing policy. So California, as many of your listeners are aware, had the PLATA decision, which resulted in a mix of changes because of the chronic overcrowding that the Supreme that the Supreme Court found plagued the California prison system and created pressure to um, reduce sentences and move and move some people out of prison altogether, resulting in realignment and keeping some people in local jails. Um, with the focus of reducing or scaling down the prison population, still a too large system in California. So my comments aren't meant to suggest that those changes are what needed are the only thing that needed to happen because clearly there's much more. And given where the national prison system is now, the people left behind are many people who were convicted of violent offenses and what characterizes a violent offense ranges from people being in possession of a gun at the time of their crime of conviction to committing homicide and other serious assaultive offenses. And what we know is that even if somebody's crime of conviction was very serious, most people age out of crime. And so the punitive sentences that dominate the U.S. criminal legal system, which subject people to too long prison terms that can result in decade-long prison sentences and life imprisonment in many instances are extreme and should be revisited significantly. And there has been some revisiting of sentencing policy, which has led to decarceration in states like New York, California, New Jersey, and a handful of other states, uh, like I've mentioned. And that decarceration has created um, a pretext in states like New York and now California for prison closures. And in other states, prisons have closed because of fiscal crises and state lawmakers were looking to reduce their budgets. And even in situations where crowding was the result of a prison closure, there was still a move to close prisons down in states like Illinois and Florida because of motivation to reduce the state budget. So I say, I offer those comments decarceration on the one end, responding to fiscal um, austerity on the other, because there's a mix of reasons why lawmakers make choices around prison closures. And the overall issue is that, but the overall issue is that uh, policymakers are continuing to perpetuate a too large prison system nationally and within every state. And there needs to be a substantial reimagining, a significant reimagining of what the purpose of prison is, transforming what can disappear someone to prison, revisiting the extreme laws that result in a prison sentence, and then significantly reducing the the nation's prison footprint by moving forward on prison closures and then permanently repurposing correctional facilities so that the number of beds that are possible to disappear people to significantly declines. So I'm wondering, do you find when you're talking about decarceration, is there a direct correlation between the numbers of people who are locked up and how we relate to prison facilities? Like if we have fewer people locked up, 
particularly in the states that you mentioned since 2009. How does that relate to the facilities that are maintained? And of course, that includes maintaining all the economies behind those prisons. Well, it created a pretext for closure, particularly in states like New York, but it's not mutually exclusive to it. So New York's prison population started to decline in the mid to in actually in the late 90s in 1999 is when the prison population peaked and then it started declining after that. The um the ability to close prisons down was a hard fought decision of a hard fought reality in that state because of a great deal of resistance from prison uh, from correctional officers and people who staff prisons and the local officials where prison towns are located a great deal of resistance was surfaced and the governor at the time who helped to move a conversation forward on prison closures was um was Cuomo now he's a complicated figure who sure. has a notorious reputation for being a bully, a political bully, and his method of governing really helped move the conversation forward on prison closures. And that's not for me to, you know, endorse or or applaud him for his way of of governing and interacting with lawmakers and other constituencies. But his sort of tough guy approach really resulted in an executive um, decision to guide a prison closure discussion starting in 2011 in New York and directing funds to prison communities, to prison towns, where economic development conversations could happen as a way to sort of address the resistance and counter the opposition. But... Those executive decisions, those um, gubernatorial leadership decisions happened many years after New York's prison population started declining. So it's not a guaranteed thing that once a prison population decreases, state officials, lawmakers, correctional officials will embrace the opportunity to decarcerate. And I would say there wasn't even necessarily sustained organizing in New York State that created the pressure and supported the pressure around uh, Cuomo's decision to move the conversation forward. So as states consider these, the possibility of prison closure and permanently repurposing prisons, it's going to be a mix of factors, including what the political environment is, what may be the executive leadership, the gubernatorial leadership, and then obviously the polit- the political dynamics from the state legislature and also the local officials who may have a vested interest in keeping prisons open or caring about the um, outcome of what the prison um, of what the uh, prison facility might end up being. So taking one quick step back, you talked about resistance that's met when, uh, I guess you were talking specifically in New York about the proposal to close prisons that some communities would come forward wanting to keep the prison open. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about like when a prison or jail is slated to close, 
what's the actual process like and what is what are the types of resistance or even support that's met? You mentioned that for the most part, this in New York's case was coming from the governor's office itself. Is it often in, in other cases tied to organizing and advocacy work? And then what's the specific resistance from communities that don't want their prisons to close? Well, in New York and also Pennsylvania, when a prison is slated for closure, there's actually a rule that um, notice has to be given and a period, a waiting period has to follow where uh, comments can be received and there's some public conversation, transparency, in the spirit of transparency. And those laws emerged because of resistance from correctional officer unions and other um, labor interests around slowing down the prison closure decision-making process, or at the very least, uh, creating space to allow for some uh, public comments on them. So it's important to note that about New York and Pennsylvania, but the process for prison closures varies from state to state. And in some states, it's a legislative decision in Texas, for example, in 2013, two private prisons contracts were not renewed in that state. And the decision was a legislative one that happened in the budget process when uh, that state was in legislative session. One of the most influential state senators at the time guided that process through. He was the, his name is John Whitmire. He was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's no longer in the state Senate. But at the time, he guided that process through and was is a very influential, was a very influential character in the Texas legislature, including heading um, the Judiciary Committee. So was able to use his political capital to, that resulted in the state not renewing two contracts with uh, two for-profit prison companies. In that uh, in that year, the process is different in in other states. In Illinois, for example, there was an organizing campaign that led to the closure of the Tans Prison, which was a maximum security prison where solitary confinement was notoriously used and subjected the people in prison there to outrageous and horrific conditions and a sustained organizing campaign created pressure to close that prison down, not because of decarceration. In fact, that prison closed down in spite of predictions that its closure would result in overcrowding, but the decision to close it was a moral one, that the prison itself, because of its solitary confinement use, was outrageous and resulted in these horrific conditions that people should not be subjected to those inhumane living conditions. And so the governor uh, was amenable to organized pressure from a range of community groups, including family members of people in prison there and decarceration organizers. And that prison was closed. Um, And the result was that people in prison there were then sent to other lockup facilities around the state, resulting in overcrowding. And from the organizers to to legislative officials to the governor's office, there was awareness that that was going to be the outcome. You know, but on the other side of that 
was that it was the right thing to do because of the outrageous conditions that people were subjected to. And so there's a mix of reasons at this point why officials might um, push for prisons to close, why organizing campaigns and decarceration advocates might target prisons for closure from the outrageous conditions that people are subjected to, to it being an outcome from prison population reductions and working to permanently reduce the state's incarceration footprint to those fiscal pressures that I mentioned earlier. Um, And I think all of those reasons should be looked at closely and there's a lot more work to explore as we move into an era, hopefully, where there will be continued prison closures and continued efforts to permanently uh, repurpose these correctional facilities around the country. We are in conversation with Nicole Porter, the Senior Director of Advocacy for the Sentencing Project, who is the lead researcher on the recent report, Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. So we've talked about why prisons close and what that process is. Once prisons close, what happens to most of these facilities? Like, these are buildings that are built for very specific purposes. Well, many of them remain dormant and eventually just become unusable because of deferred maintenance and lack of um, upkeep. Some of the prisons are undergo what we call a soft closing. So... The state closes them down, taking advantage of decarceration, um, working to reduce their overall budgets, but have this, um, are imagining that there's a possibility for the need to reopen the prison. And so they do a soft closing where they continue to have modest staff at the prison, although nobody, um, they may not have anyone in prison there. For example, Oregon has undergone some soft closings in the last year, and some of those lockup facilities are um, included on the list of closures in the report. And other states work to permanently repurpose the prisons outside of correctional use. Oh, well, let me step back. Another issue is once a prison closes, if it's not repurposed, there's a, there's, um, you know, a cautionary tale that it could be re, um, it could be uh, used for other correctional uses. So there is a history, a pattern of adult prisons closing and being reused for immigration detention, um, being uh, transferred either to the federal system in states like Illinois, where a state prison was transferred to the federal system um, to imprison um, uh, immigration you know, people on immigration charges. There's also a pattern of a juvenile or youth justice prisons or facilities closing, and then those lockups being transferred to the adult system in some states. So that points me to my last comment, which is that there is a pattern of repurposing prisons outside of correctional use. There are a couple of examples highlighted in the report And one of the key recommendations in the report is that as states and localities move to close prisons, there should be immediate plans for their repurposing outside of correctional use so that those prisons can't be reopened either for their original 
correctional use or be transferred to some other part of the mass incarceration system to disappear people and incarcerate people. I think the reality is, is that the United States overbuilt its prison system overall. You know, other countries experienced increases in crime in the 70s just the way that the United States did. But countries like Germany and Sweden invested in social interventions that prevented people from coming in contact with the criminal legal system in the first place, whereas the United States embarked on what I call the Marshall Carceral Plan. They, the United States lawmakers at the time increased punitiveness, adopted mandatory sentencing, disappeared people to prison as a response to a, a rise in crime, rather than investing in social interventions now proven to work that produce that reduced criminal legal contact in the first place, interventions in education, interventions in guaranteed jobs programs, that even for people most at risk of committing crime, there are public safety options outside of prison that can keep communities safe and can support public safety. And the United States did not do that for a range of reasons, including the fact that this country is dominated by a racial caste system and other countries that are more homogeneous had other ways of handling um, their crime breakers when crime increased more nearly 50 years ago, over 50 years ago at this point. So what lawmakers and decarceration advocates and other advocates and stakeholders should consider is planning to permanently move these correctional facilities these warehouses that are funded with public money and public dollars outside of the carceral system and towards other purposes that can help improve uh, community safety and can be better uses for the public good. So let's talk about some really specific examples. Your report is about repurposing correctional facilities. So obviously, we're talking about shifting the original purpose of the facility away from incarcerating people. What are some ways that communities have created alternative uses of those spaces? So I'll start, I'll say that this is an emerging issue and that what I hope is that it further develops and that decarceration advocates and other social justice advocates engage with these projects in a way that, moves away from the carceral system. And, and I say, I, I preface my comments by saying that because of this. The current repurposing projects in some ways reinforce mass incarceration, even though they're no longer imprisoning people there. And I understand that. But what I also think is helpful and needed is that anytime a prison closes and no longer warehouses people there, that that's a step in the right direction. Mm. But some examples of prison repurposing projects include a movie studio in the New York area in Long Island, and it's an odd name for prison, or maybe it was right on point. The Arthur Kill Correctional Facility mm. was a medium security prison that has been repurposed into a movie and television studio, and it's still a prison. I mean, I mean, it still looks like a prison. So the types of television shows that have filmed there or movies that have filmed there include Orange is the New Black, which, you know, shouldn't be a surprise because of the popular television show that was set at a prison and other uh, television shows like The Blacklist, which I've never seen, but I imagine there must have been, you know, a prison was uh, a, a setting for that uh, for that television show. Right. 
Other repurposing projects include um, a maximum security prison in rural Tennessee, the former Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, which has been repurposed into a whiskey distillery and campgrounds. Now that whiskey distillery sort of monetizes and capitalizes off the fact that it's um, located at a former prison. So the aesthetic, huh. the branding of the of the whiskey being sold, sort of capitalizes off of the off of mass incarceration in many ways. Then there's also the notorious Lorton Reformatory, which was the which is in the Virginia area, but was the prison for DC residents who were sentenced to prisons. That prison closed down in the late 90s when D.C. was under fiscal receivership. And now uh, people from D.C. who are sentenced to prison go into the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So Lorton has been repurposed into a mixed-use real estate development complex that now has very expensive condos and townhomes and offers um, art and community space for artists and other community workshops. What I think, I think, again, anytime a prison closes and no longer warehouses and disappears people to it, it's a step in the right direction. And it's helping to reverse the nation's mass incarceration footprint. I do think what also needs to happen is critical engagement with what these repurposing projects are how the acknowledgement and addressing of the harms and state violence that resulted in them and disappeared people to them that reinforced the racial caste system. What I hope happens going forward is that decarceration advocates and abolition um, coalitions work to not just demand for prisons closures and repurposing them, but also holds the the people anchoring these redevelopment projects accountable to not reinforcing America's racial caste system at these former prison sites. And then also works to acknowledge what these prisons used to be and moves away from monetizing and capitalizing off of mass incarceration. There's also a very challenging history of some older former prisons that aren't documented in the report because their closure was many years before the 2000 date that the report starts with. But closed prisons like the Eastern State Penitentiary in the Philadelphia area and other older closed prisons that have haunted houses at the at the closed prisons and and um, take fees for haunted house uh, prison tours or haunted house prison experiences and have been doing that for years and generate a significant amount of revenue to sustain their operations. And these sites, again, they're not imprisoning people there, but they are capitalizing off of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, they don't critically engage with the history, with the with the laws that resulted in mass incarceration to begin with. And frankly, the, um, the black codes and the other underlying structures that have disappeared, you know, tens of thousands, millions of black Americans to these uh, sites over the years. So it's, 
a lot of there's a lot of work that needs to be done. This is an emerging conversation. And in many ways, there needs to be um, greater exploration around not just repurposing the sites, but then how to acknowledge the harms that took place there, even when a repurposing project is completed. And I'll just close with saying this, that I think the work happening in my home state of Texas around the minimum security Dawson State Jail is an example of what could happen, ideally with a repurposing project. The people anchoring that repurposing are the Trinity Conservancy project, the prison abuts a green space and the public interest organization that is running the Trinity Conservancy has acquired the closed minimum security prison. And as they plan for the repurposing of this uh, closed prison in the Dallas area, they have uh, convened community conversations. They've hired residents who were formerly incarcerated at the minimum security prison. And their plan for its reuse takes into consideration acknowledging the history of the closed prison, the policies and practices that led to the the, um, incarceration of so many residents at the closed prison, and then trying to support a conversation around community repair and addressing harm by the people who were directly impacted by incarceration at the prison. So it sounds like that particular example kind of follows exactly what um, you're imagining in in a way that doesn't reinforce the cultures of imprisonment or capitalize off the harms that a prison represents. If we have listeners who are advocates and organizers trying to follow these up in in their own communities with closed or closing imprisonment sites, how can people find out more about that particular example that you gave? Well, I highlighted in the report and also they have a they have an online presence so people can um, search online for Dawson State Jail and repurposing or the Trinity uh, Park Conservancy and they'll come across the Trinity Park Conservancy's website and they have a great deal of documentation around the community conversations they've been hosting so far. Well, we will definitely have those links up on our website. We're in conversation with Nicole Porter, the Senior Director of Advocacy for the Sentencing Project, who is the lead researcher on the recent report, Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. Now, in building up your analysis in the report, you also took some lessons from the decommissioning of military bases and power plants. What is there to learn from those examples that can be transferable to repurposing imprisonment facilities? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was helpful to include that because it is an example of public facilities being reused and there there being pressure to decommission them because of the history of um, trying to lessen the military footprint within the country, although it's still too large in many in many ways. I think the lessons learned uh, can be assumptions around cost savings, but then not actually realizing them. And so the need to actually reduce what the uh, what the footprint is, what the landed footprint is of the closed public, um, in this case, military base was for to something else, um, reducing its overall footprint, 
um, converting the closed site into something else so that the maintenance of any closed military base and its um, related staffing doesn't continue to draw resources, in many cases, limited resources, um, because of the need, because of, um, you know, lack of funding that could be directed into other purposes. And other challenges include the impact of the facility and its um, and the waste that uh, was executed while the uh, closed military bases were open that resulted in impacting the land and potentially making the land unusable. So land reuse is a significant issue um, for closed military bases, and it's an issue for prisons. Um, as prisons have closed, what the impact on the, the uh, local geography, local topography, with any um, spillover effects of chemicals and related waste can be problematic and is something for prison um, redevelopers to think about in terms of what the potential use for that site might may be outside of its, you know, current use or previous use as a correctional facility. And just to clarify, you're talking about uh, prisons and correctional facilities being built on land that is on top of or, or near basically toxic sites, right? On Which, top of toxic sites that um, contribute to environmental hazards, but also themselves resulting in toxic hazards because mm. of the waste that the prisons um, contributed to. And, and for a range of reasons, including the infrastructure that has been built to support many prison facilities, if you think about it, particularly these extremely large prisons in California and um, in states like my home state of Texas, where the facilities are very large and have disappeared 3,000 people to them or several thousand people to them. And the plumbing and electrical infrastructure um, that was uh built to service those lockup facilities and then the deferred maintenance or lack of maintenance that has, um, you know, not been kept up with because of a lack of underfunding for these lockup facilities. And then the impact of that deferred maintenance because of its weakened and not fully funded or not supported infrastructure in the surrounding community and in the, um, in the land that the prison sits on itself. Which, of course, all brings up the question of how we can justify locking people up in those places in the first place, forcing people to live on toxic land, right? It's outrageous, not just the choice to disappear people to prison, but to keep people in prison for so long and to allow the prison system to have grown to the size that it's grown to. I mean, there's still two million people who are incarcerated on any given day. Um, so there has been de declines, but there's still too many people going in and the length of prison terms is still too long. And there's too, there's too few people being released regularly because of a abolition of parole in many states because of life without parole sentences in most states. So it is the way in which we reinforce these practices and these experiences day to day 
needs to be significantly revisited um, because the use of prison just grew way too large in this country over the last 50 years and how this country has accommodated that by building public infrastructure that was and that was carceral is something um, to seriously take a look at. You touched on this earlier, but I'm hoping we can return to it as we start to wind down our conversation. I'm wondering how you imagine or how you hope that the research that you're doing in, in this project can contribute to the decarceration movement. And like, we have some high profile facilities that are set to close here in California, the California Correctional Center, which is in Susanville. It was supposed to close last summer and it's not yet closed, but hopefully it will be soon. Of course, the infamous Rikers Island in New York is set to close. How can people in those communities use your report as a resource or or how do you imagine the idea of repurposing former prisons growing? Well, I'm very excited to engage with folks in California around the closure of the prison in Susanville. Um, And I know that there's some strong organizing that's been happening there to keep the pressure on and to make sure that the prison does close, even though um, it's way past its closure date, given the promise of it closing last summer. And I really want to work with folks on planning for what comes next in Susanville. I know I've been keeping up with the reports um, and I know that the uh, people in the town in Susanville have very, you know, need help thinking about what could come next. And those conversations don't have to be adversarial. Hopefully they can be transformative, collaborative with decarceration advocates and with the people who make Susanville their home about what could come next. And I hope that the state of California supports those conversations with funding for economic development planning and any resources that the state directs to that effort shouldn't just be about Susanville. It should also be about the sending communities where people are disappeared from in California so that funding from the state can support conversations on reentry and, you know, really helping to make people whole who have been harmed uh, by their imprisonment. And in New York is a more complicated story around Rikers. I do hope Rikers, there's a plan for Rikers after its closure. I hope that decarceration advocates in New York City who are, who have really been holding um, truth to the fire out there because of the deaths at Rikers and the outrageous conditions that so many people are subjected to at Rikers or have gone through and are going through. Hope that they also work with New York City officials to plan for a permanent, um, you know, repurposing of Rikers. Imagine what could come next. But I also know that the closure of Rikers is dependent upon new construction in and around the city. And so there are there's a question about what that will look like and what the potential impact that will be, particularly since um, there will be sort of a diffusion, a decentralization of local corrections in New York City with the bureau-based jail system. So as Rikers closes and a reimagining for its um, for its closure, following its closure, takes hold, I also hope that decarceration advocates continue 
to look closely at what is happening in the borough-based jail system in the city and what the impacts might be on people who are detained and required to um, serve their time at Rikers. I wanted to mention to our listeners that we will be having a guest on from CURB, Californians United for a Responsible Budget, who are some of the advocates working toward decarceration in Susanville for that prison that Nicole was just talking about. Um, we're in conversation with Nicole Porter, the Senior Director of Advocacy for the Sentencing Project, who is the lead researcher on the recent report, Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. My name is Jesse Strauss, and you are listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I have one last thing I want to talk about with you to close our conversation, Nicole. Um, I want to bring this conversation really locally here in Alameda County, and I want to add a piece um, that's new to our listeners. For me, it's an opportunity to dream big, and I know you've been doing a lot of that lately with this report and with all your work over many years. So Alameda County, the county where we produce this show from, closed one of its two major jail facilities in 2019. That was the Glen Dyer or North County Jail Facility that sits right next to the courthouse in Oakland. The facility mm-hmm. had capacity for 400 people, but was only half full for a long time until the county decided to restructure and close the entire facility because of undercrowding. So it's a little bit complicated. That facility right in the heart of Oakland was easier for people to visit their incarcerated family members. All our county's prisoners are now in Santa Rita County Jail, which is in Dublin. It's harder to access for folks who aren't from that community. Um, It's worth mentioning that Santa Rita Jail is also only operating at about half of its capacity, although it's a much larger jail. All that said, we've had an entirely empty jail since 2019, big enough to house 400 prisoners. And when Glenn Dyer was first slated to close in August of 2019, the Alameda County Board of Supervisors made an offer to lease the jail facility to the city of Oakland for the purpose of turning it into a homeless shelter. <laughs> that that proposal was shot down. We certainly need housing options for our houseless neighbors, but we need options that don't just feel like jail already. Um, sure. So recently I myself submitted some public records requests from the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department is the bureaucratic agency that manages our jails in California And through those requests, I've learned that the Alameda County Sheriff's Department has spent about two and a half million dollars on that facility, supposedly for basic maintenance of this building Mm -hmm. that no longer serves any purpose. They are not. That's what I was mentioning earlier. Yeah, I think you called it a soft mm -hmm. closure, right? Mm hmm. So, you know, from January to June of this year alone, the Sheriff's Department spent over a million dollars on this facility that serves no purpose and there's no intention to reopen it for any purpose. Nicole, I'm wondering as a local community here and knowing what you've learned in your research, do you have thoughts or or ideas of what we can imagine repurposing this facility for? Well, I wouldn't come for me, but I would so be, I would so welcome an opportunity to participate in the conversation. It would be great if there could be a group that came together and imagined a plan for what could happen for what comes next for that closed jail. 
I know in a previous iteration of um, the report I did, there were closed prisons near cities or in cities were converted for community use. These are substantial projects though, but I think these are projects that should be funded. There's an interest of the state to support the repurposing of these closed correctional facilities, whether they be jails, local jails or state prisons. There's a purpose of local governments to uh, fund the repurposing of these correctional facilities. And there should be a public interest in doing it as well. So to the extent that the community could come together, think about what could come next, have a plan in mind, have discussions in mind for what could come next. This current report that um, led us to have a conversation today and previous reports that I did, one being in 2016 that highlighted some other repurposed uh, prison projects, offer examples of what closed prisons or jails could be converted to, but they're not by any means the only thing. So I'd be very curious to hear and learn from community members what they think the prison could be repurposed to. In addition to the repurposing projects we've talked about already, there is a closed prison in California in the Gainesville area. So it's near a a center city, it's near a major city um, that was reconverted to community space for the unhoused population. But the entire lockup was reconfigured to not uh, have the same feel as a prison. In addition to servicing the unhoused population in the Gainesville area, there's community space. So community groups, including uh, social services agencies, have their office space there, and they meet with people providing social work um, consultations with community residents, and then allow other community groups to, um, to use the meeting space there. And it's a similar example of hopefully what will result in the change in the Dallas area facility that I was talking about earlier, not um, with the intent around um, supporting the unhoused population, but having the closed facility, the closed prison be reconverted into use for the public good so that community groups and social service agencies can be working out of the closed prison to repair the harm that people experience rather than reinforce it. Well, we will certainly continue to talk about that in our communities and with our community members. We will work on this reimagining project. Um, And Nicole, you very well may be invited to participate in that since you offered. I would welcome the opportunity to participate. And I'm very much curious about the conversation you'll have with Curb organizers soon. I you know, have worked with Curb for a long time and am very inspired by the organizing they're doing at Susanville and really want to work with Curb and others in California around reimagining Susanville, but also the dual um, vocational institute that closed last year as well. And that's highlighted on the list in the report. Well, that's all our time for today. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. appreciate being invited and you engaging with the report. We've been in conversation with Nicole Porter, Senior Director of Advocacy for the Washington, D.C.-based Sentencing Project, who is the lead researcher on the recent report, Repurposing Correctional Facilities to Strengthen Communities. 
You can read the report linked from our website. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more episodes about our topics and guests on this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. Feel free to hit us up about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. This show is produced by myself, Jesse Strauss, and hosted often by Cat Brooks. Our theme music is by Steve Raskin. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusive by listeners like you. If you're in a position to support us today, please donate online at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We're all we got, fam.